Welcome to the Pendulum Land Podcast. Our podcast is designed for people interested in the right-of-way industry, eminent domain, or the Uniform Relocation Act, or anyone who just enjoys spirited discussion of popular culture. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a full-service right-of-way acquisition firm managed by industry experts who are dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way process. Visit them at PendulumLand.com. With us today, our regular crew, Kristen Bennett from Texas. Party on, Kristen. Party on, Dave. Carrie Lynn Hirsch from Pendulum Land. Party on, Carrie Lynn. Party on, Dave. Ross Green, eminent domain extraordinaire attorney from Virginia. Party on, Ross. I'm Dave Arnold, your host and authority on the best music and movies released between 1975 and the year 1999. Let's get to it today. Eminent domain appraisals. Is it live or is it Memorex? Hey, uh, Memorex, is that uh, is that still a term? No, and nobody remembers this poll. Yeah, Memorex. Um, it should be like, is it live or is it TikTok or something, right? <laughs> well, do you do you at least know what I'm talking about? I do, but I'm not. Okay, you know, I'm not sure everyone will. You didn't go to a school that had words. That's <laughs> what Ross says. So you should know what Memorex says. We're talking about VHS tapes. So wow, we're out of date here. They were cassette tapes. I was gonna say whatever. <laughs> Same concept. So I had a tape. In our little off time since the last time we recorded some podcasts, I had a thought. Have you ever seen the movie Wayne's World? Only. About a million times. Right. I basically have the entire movie memorized. And in that movie, these two guys, Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar, have their own public access station show called Wayne's World, which they do in Wayne's basement. This kind of feels like the Pendulum Land podcast to me, doesn't it? A little bit. And then this guy, Benjamin, played by Rob Lowe, finds them a sponsor, which is Noah's Arcade, and... This is not feeling so much like the Pendulum Land podcast. We don't have we don't have a sponsor like like Noah's Arcade. Well, I haven't told you guys this, but um, uh, I have gotten a couple of inquiries about what it would cost for other companies to sponsor. And was uh, it Memorex? No, it wasn't Memorex. I mean, we got a couple of six figure offers, and I said not enough because then nobody else gets a piece of the pie except for me. So, what it would cost, as in what we would pay them or what they would pay us? <laughs> You so, know what? Let's not get down in the weeds on this. So you've seen Wayne's World. <laughs> so which character are you most like? Kristen, you're like Stacy, like to- Wayne's mental ex-girlfriend. Yes, totally. The hi, Wayne. Hi. What are you, mental? <laughs> and did you get your, your husband a gun rack for his birthday? I don't even have a gun, let alone many guns, which would necessitate a gun rack. Yeah. But no, I, I'll, I'll take Stacy. I'll be Stacy. Deal. Carrie Lynn? Yes. Cassandra. She's Cassandra. The bass player from Crucial Taunt is the Crucial name of the Crucial Taunt, the vixen. So should I be flattered or yes. insulted? Everybody wants to be Cassandra. Wayne's in love with her. I've never seen Wayne's World. Wait. What? What? Um, she is, I believe, Cantonese. Is that correct, Dave? I think so. She She's speaks. beautiful. She plays the bass, and she's like 
sings? Well, I, <clears throat> let me put it into perspective. That bass player is a babe. She makes me feel kind of funny, like when we used to climb the rope in gym class. <laughs> and on that note, do we even need to ask who, which character you are, Dave? Well, who's the coolest? Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not going to fight us on it that you're Garth Elgar, right? What? Yeah, okay. Clearly. Clearly. Hey, Ross, if you're going to spew, spew into this. Oh, boy. Okay, Ross, have you seen Wayne's World? Yes. Okay, who are you? Who's the guy Rob Lowe plays? Benjamin. Yes. Benjamin. You're Benjamin. He's a little snobby about food and drink. Yeah, well. And then that would be perfect for Ross. I mean. And do you remember when, when Wayne and Garth go to Benjamin's condo, high-rise condo, and Garth goes through those drawers, and he pulls something out of the drawer, and he goes, Ribbed for her pleasure. Ew. <laughs> uh, yes. So congratulations. Clearly, clearly we know who he is. You're Benjamin. Yes. Yeah. That so, means nobody in here is Wayne, though, which kind of def oh. defeats the purpose. Can I be Wayne instead of Stacy? Sure. I don't know. I kind of like Stacy. She has wicked 80s outfits. The let's purpose, get to it. Let, let's start. Let's talk about what is the purpose of an eminent domain appraisal. And... Is it any different than any other sort of appraisal? Should there be a difference? Those are two different questions. Let's First of all, let's go to our human encyclopedia. And I know we've done this in the past. Ross is already rolling his eyes. But Ross, will you def define what is an appraisal? Give us the definition. I just think it's an opinion of value. I mean, generally, the appraisers don't want anybody else giving paid opinions of value but them. Right. But for a few minor exceptions. So, and it has to be written, right? It's a written opinion of value? Well, you can, appraisers under USPAP can give an oral report, so it doesn't have to be a written report in order to be an appraisal. No. Is, is there a difference between an eminent domain appraisal and any other kind of appraisal? Ross? Uh, I don't think there is from an appraisal technique standpoint. There are differences because you're making a hypothetical transaction. I mean, a lot of the problem think that we were talking about in the previous episode with Jeremy was there's differences in what you're trying to figure out because what you're doing is not a transaction that would really occur in the normal you know, universe between a willing buyer and a willing seller most of the time. You're, you're often doing things that wouldn't even be legal as a land transaction, uh, you know, because it would violate the subdivision ordinance uh, or it would result in a non-conforming lot or you know, various results that you couldn't actually do in a willing buyer, willing seller transaction. So the outcome of the report often doesn't look like something that would occur in a willing buyer, willing seller transaction because it wouldn't. The, transact the deal just wouldn't happen. If somebody came to you and said, I want to do this, you'd say, well, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Uh, and you know, they're like, well, how much? And you're like, well, either buy the whole thing from me or not at all. So you end up in situations where you're trying to appraise things that wouldn't normally occur, uh, in the business world. But even if we're basing it on some hypotheticals, which it, like we're kind of basing it on some hypotheticals, it's fair market value should be fair market value, not influenced by the reason we're putting a value on it. Right. Well, and that was uh, fair market value is the standard and that's what you want it to be. But then you have to figure out when you're making up, you know, your hypothetical transaction, 
you know, what you include and what you don't. Once you've left the realm of a transaction that would usually occur in the business world, then you start having to come up with ways to determine if the, you know, the appraisal outcome is fair or not. Because that's the, the key part that I think the landowner's bar leaves out is that the valuation process has to be fair to both the taxpaying public and to the landowner. And that balancing act requires you know, that certain steps be taken that you know, wouldn't be in a normal appraisal. My understanding is this. We, we discussed just compensation in a prior episode, and just compensation is, as Ross, the human encyclopedia, said, it's really fair market value. Can we not call me that? It no. really triggers me because that was what they called me in grade school to make fun of me. So I Okay, really what shall we call it. you? That's like Thaddeus what? Miriam Webster? Thanos? Thanos. Y'all watch that movie and then you call me Thanos. Thanos oh. can destroy half the human race by snapping his fingers. I think that's apropos, or actually, I'm of sorry. Of nothing. I actually pronounced that incorrectly. It's apropos. And tell us the origin of that word. It's apropos. Yeah, okay. No, but no, do you actually, not know? Ross. Sh- Listen, apropos is pronounced apropos. And the reason is because, um, you know, like the Galapagos Islands where Darwin had like the turtles and stuff? Okay, there was another island called apropos, and there were apes there, and nobody really knows about it. So that's the origin of that word. Yeah. Everybody knows this, Ross. Where'd you go to school? Yeah, y'all carry y'all alternative facts universe and like get away from my Latin and Greek roots. Thanks. Okay. So (laughs) just compensation is fair market value. Fair market value is determined by an appraisal. Oftentimes in eminent domain, the appraisal is not occurring under a real business transaction. It's kind of a faked transaction because it's either being acquired by a partial acquisition or it's not a voluntary transaction, et cetera. So is the position that although they're supposed to really be the same, you should get the same definition, you should get the same opinion of fair market value, whether eminent domain is involved or not, isn't it really true that it's not the same as a normal appraisal? I tend to think it should be as similar as it's possible to be taking into account the applicable legal rules for the state or jurisdiction that you're in, um, you know, because the alternative is, are these made-as-intended folks that make it up as they go along and want to say it's, it's eminent domain appraisal and it's different than regular appraisal, therefore we'll just make the number be whatever we want it to be. It's not really any different. And and well, what we see in what I think we see in eminent domain cases is the landowner has a vested interest in the appraisal being as high as possible. The condemning authority has an interest in the appraisal being as low as possible. And from where I sit, these appraisals can be manipulated depending on the appraiser that you hired. Agree or disagree? Agree. Okay. Now, let's dive into that a little more carefully. We all agree there are three basic appraisal methodologies that are generally accepted. There may be others, but there's three that we see all the time. That's the comparable sales approach, the income approach, and the cost approach. Would anybody like to jump in and briefly describe the comparable sales approach? Thanos? Okay, so the comparable sales approach is basically apples to apples. You value something by finding previous sales of as close to as possible as the same object. Now, this makes sense real easy when you're talking about valuing consumer commodities. But when you're talking about land, each piece of land is different. So you're not going to find usually the exact same piece of land. Now for say residential appraisal in a 
developed Metro, you may find almost one for one comps because, okay, so it's in a large subdivision. You can probably find sales of the same house or close thereto in that subdivision recently. And so you can get real, real close uh, to your square foot value and total parcel value. But then when you get into commercial properties or anything out in the country, you end up with different sizes, shapes, configurations, access, um, and a bunch of other factors. So you don't really have exactly the same apple. You're not like, okay, I've got a Granny Smith, so I've got three Granny Smiths, and they sold for these prices, so I know what the range of prices for a Granny Smith is. You're like, I got a Granny Smith... And over here we got like a pineapple. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if it's a if it's a pineapple, I think that's not a comp. We'd have to adjust the pineapple pretty heavily to try to get. So with to adju- the- you'd have to make lots and lots of adjustments. There you case. go. And and we started out this conversation by saying that in my opinion, each is subject to manipulation by the appraisal, and this is the first way that I think the comparable sales approach can be manipulated by an appraiser because in every single comparable sales appraisal I've ever seen, there is a comparable sales chart in which the comparables selected can be adjusted. And on what basis are they adjusted? Anybody? Whatever the appraiser wants to make the adjustments be. The appraiser's own opinion. It's not in a book. It's not in a chart. It's not in an encyclopedia. It's not in Merriam-Webster's. So the appraiser can simply take the stand and say, that's just my, that's my opinion. It is possible for them to be based on paired sales analysis or basically deduction from other, if you have enough other sales to conduct a study in order to determine the adjustment of the price uh, inflicted. Like one time I know I've seen a study for uh, addition of a uh, power line easement across a property and the guy was able to have a study about it because you could see where they put in a power line across a street for many, many, many parcels. So you could look at sales data before the power line went in and And sales data after the power line went in to see if it affected it. Now the answer is it didn't really affect it, which is never, is not really the answer that uh, the landowner attorneys want for most of these things. Well, and absent that information and absent that sort of study and that kind of information that's available, then we go to, it's just an opinion. Like it's just the appraiser comes up with it out of his brain. Oh yeah. Most of the time they make it up. Yeah. Okay. All, all appraisals are opinion. They're, they're defined as an opinion of value. Opinion? That's a definition of an appraisal. But what I get hung up with and every single appraiser I've either deposed or I've cross-examined just kind of looks at me like I have three heads or like, yeah, duh, is I'm like, but appraiser so-and-so, why did you make a 25% adjustment? Where did you get that from? And they're like, it's just my opinion. And I'm like, well, based on what? I don't know. My years of work. And I'm like, okay. Nobody else has a problem with this? Hey, I- I'll tell you this. Guys, you know what I do. What? <laughs> Relocation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if y'all knew. Um, and a lot of times I'll get a move bid and my clients will say, is this in line with what's, you know, is this in line with the market for what we should pay to move this stuff? And I'll go, yeah. And they're like, okay. And they just trust like my, I'll, I'll look at a move bid for like a convenience store and go, yeah, that's about what it usually costs. I don't have like some market study to back that up. I just do this enough to know that like if you if you give me a bid for moving all the contents of a convenience store for two hundred thousand dollars, I'm gonna go. Uh, uh-uh, uh, that's a little out of line with what I typically see. So, just so because I've done it. Yeah, lot. what you're saying is it's it's very fair to have nope. this be based on experience. I'm not saying it's very fair. I'm saying I can relate to that conundrum because I've had to do the same thing. 
right. based on just my experience. Okay. Second. Do you know what conundrum means? Uh, no. Is that like when you get a 50-gallon barrel and you turn it upside down and play the bongos on it or steel drums? Yeah. Yeah. That's a conundrum. Yeah, I got like, a very high score on the verbal SAT. I yeah. think I was around 450 on that. Like, so remember the, the the big show that was popular for a long time called Stomp, where they would like play the drums? Stomp the Yard? Stomp. It's That's a conundrum, that they were playing the conundrum. Oh, the conundrums. Got yes. it. Yes, yes, yes okay. I do have that. So okay. the second common um, appraisal methodology that we see is the income approach. Would anybody like to jump in on this one? When is it used? We're all looking at Ross right now, just okay. FYI. What's, what is he called again? Thanos. 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 Let me write that down. It's used for income-generating properties. See, Carrie Lynn Hello, knows the Hello, Carrie Lynn. Yes. That's and the income. Keep, keep it going, Carrie Lynn. That's all I know. Okay, Thanos. Oh, come on. Don't you know the rest of it? I can't explain it nearly as well come as on, you, Come on, Benjamin. Come on, uh, Benjamin. Okay. So You know what it's like? It's like a new pair of underwear. At first, it's constrictive, but after a while, it becomes a part of you. No, it doesn't. Oh. Okay, that's not accurate. I, I don't need no. I, I refuse to accept this. Okay, so the income approach assumes the time value of money. So you take the income from the property and, you know, boiling this down way too much, you take essentially a year's value, you know, a year's income from the property. Uh, divide it by a capitalization rate to arrive at a, you know, at a current value for the property. So it makes everybody's head hurt because you get there by dividing by a decimal, which is the same thing as multiplying. I, I don't know if I've told you guys this, but I was a mathlete oh in high school. God. Yes, you've told us okay. multiple you, times. Like, literally, you've never not told okay. us Okay, well, I was a mathlete, but that makes even my mathlete brain hurt. What? No, it, yeah, you do, if you divide by a decimal, you end up multiplying. And the decimal is Fair the, enough, and you know what? My sixth grade daughter is actually doing that right now. So, yeah, I can, mathlete, mathletes can handle that work. Okay. Right, so a capitalization rate is the measure of the, can be categorized as a measure of the risk or rate of return expected by the market for that investment. So if you were to buy that property in order to get that income stream, what rate of return would you expect to get? And that's what you use to divide the income stream to determine the present value of the property from the income stream. Okay. Now, and that is just like the tiniest tippy tip of the iceberg of the nest of snakes that the income approach is because you've got to figure out, there's a bunch that goes into figuring out you know, what your net operating income is and the capitalization rate is basically like chicken sacrificing voodoo, man. Like you get there <laughs> with like a Ouija board and some chicken entrails and you move it around and a demon makes the number there's, appear in blood. Okay? There's nothing like a Ross analogy. So, but here's my point, And thank you for that analogy is there is this crazy piece of voodoo that you find by an Ouija board called the cap rate, right? And according to Ross Grant, according to Thanos, the, the most the slightest adjustment to the cap rate can have big effects on the ultimate opinion of value. Do we agree with that? Yes. Okay. Now here's where I'm coming down. Where do you come up? Who comes up with a cap rate? You can actually determine the appropriate cap rate if you have access to the market data for commercial properties of that type 
in the market area and there have been enough transactions for you to figure out what the expected rate of return is essentially for financing that type of transaction. But you would need at usually a broker that has access to a whole lot of data for that market. And you'd have to assume that you have a market that contains enough data and transactions to try to figure it out. And you'd have to have an appraiser that actually bothered to check any of that data as opposed to what I said before, which is it's much easier for them to go sacrifice a chicken than it is for them to go actually collect the necessary data to determine a reasonable cap rate. And again, that's a, a massive over summary of how that actually works. And there's a couple other different methodologies you can use to try to determine the range of the cap rate, so assuming they actually did them. How often would you see the income approach used in like a rural area? Is that a good method if you're in a rural area? Is it's, that a lot of comps? It's applicable for really most properties that would trade in this way and that generate income. But you do see people manipulating it, trying to stick it onto properties that don't necessarily generate an income, but they think could. Or I think one time we had them try to put it on a house. Some I still haven't figured out how they tried to put it on a house. Like a landlord situation or what? No, it house. actually wasn't. It was just some people's house and somehow they tried to um, but I mean, that is Mark from a market standpoint, when you're figuring out how to rent, say a not very nice house, that's really just a rental box. I mean, investors do tend to come at that as I can make this much money in a year in rent off of this property. You know, I'm going to lose this much, make a pro forma balance sheet, you know, off of, you know, repairs, insurance, et cetera, you know, occupancy loss, et cetera, get to a net operating income for that house, figure out, you know, what essentially, the amount of interest and costs, et cetera, like the rate that they're going to have to make to make a profit to get over their, you know, debt service and then divide. And that ends up, you know, you can figure out how much you'd be willing to pay for the unit in that way. But you're kind of backing into the whole thing because really you could just go find three, five, seven boxes of the same type in the same geography, you know, compare and figure out what the actual market rate is instead of trying to, back to it mathematically. Because really the sales comparison approach, if you have the data and you don't jiggle it, is probably the most effective one. The other two, income and the one after this cost approach, are much more subject to manipulation because you're not, you're trying to arrive at the market value of an item without actual direct market data of the value of that item. So if there's comparables available and you can do the comparable method to go to the income or the cost approach, is that just giving us more opportunities for manipulation? Is that what you're saying? Yes. The courts prefer the comparable sales approach and it's well documented all over the country. Let's, can we e talk? Go ahead. It's easier for the average person to understand. And it's easier for a jury yes. to understand. So they, what, they understand apples to apples. Apples to apples, not apples to pineapples. Because <laughs> I understand the income approach, but even while Ross was explaining it, now I think I don't understand it. It, is, right. it can be very confusing. And that is a great point. And the point I want to make with that is they go and spew that, if you're going to spew, spew into this, in front of the jury. <laughs> and the jury's eyes glaze over, and they're like, I got no idea how he arrived at that or why. I like his tie better. I vote for him. And he right, sounds we, smart. So he, he must sounds, know what he's talking he about. He sounds smart. So, right. and, and going back to my point, every landowner appraiser I've ever deposed who utilized the income approach, he told me in his deposition 
that he just came up with the capital rate. Based on his experience. Based on his experience. And a slight modification to that cap rate has an enormous effect on the value of that property. Wait. And then you can't explain the cap rate to the jury. They don't under, I don't even, Carrie Lynn doesn't understand it. I used to. Right, until. <laughs> until today. Until, until Thanos, Thanos, until Thanos ruined your world. Okay, Thanos, can we talk about that third approach? As a simple approach to the cap rate, think about how much money you want to make on the deal. Like what rate of return, if you're going to make an investment, do you want to receive? A million dollars. Bazillion dollars. No, no. Five thousand dollars. A percent. Five thousand dollars. We got five thousand dollars. A percentage. Oh, a million. But it's not. It's not the rate that we want to make. We're trying to determine what it actually is. It depends on how you get there. You can get there multiple ways, in depending on what you're trying to figure out with the income approach. Most of the time. So that it is easier to manipulate then. Oh yeah. Most of the time, people in the real world are using the income approach to figure out what they want to pay for something or what they're willing to pay for something when you're trying to use it to determine the exact actual price of something a lot more difficult. So let, let's move on to the third most common and my least favorite of the valuation approaches, and that's the cost approach. And I will tell you straight up, I think it's one click short of being crooked. I don't like it. I don't like how it's manipulated. But it is accepted by some courts. It's not. It's not favored by the courts, but they will accept it. Um, Ross, excuse me, Thanos. Thanos, so, Thanos, would you give us an overview of the cost approach? Well, the cost approach is essentially the knee-jerk feeling when you, you have an eminent domain case is people want to be like, well, how much would it t take for them to replace that? Mm -hmm. okay. Well, replacement cost isn't the same thing as fair market value. So... Obviously, once you have a building, the building starts to wear out. We call that wearing out depreciation. So with the cost approach, what you're trying to figure out is essentially the depreciated replacement value. So you're trying to, to back into the current value by figuring out what it would cost to make that property and then what it's currently worth based on how much it's depreciated. Okay, there's two problems with this. The cost approach works best and is, is perhaps only really fair for properties that are very, very new or properties that there's no, uh, there basically is no comparable sale data because you don't, you wouldn't use this when you have comparable sale data because it's so difficult to arrive at the correct number. Because the longer something has been built, the further away you are from the market price of the materials at the time. So what it costs to build something now is not what it costs to build something if you've got a building from 1970. Same thing with you know the depreciation rate. Buildings depreciate, and we all know that they do, and everybody deals with depreciation in the real estate world, you know, usually as a tax issue. But trying to figure out the actual depreciation is very, very difficult because it's kind of like you've got a building for the most part until it falls down. You know, it's like there's, there's a curve in there somewhere that's hard to figure out of, well, we know it's kind of starting to have some wear on it, but it's still a good building. So is that 
you know, 5% depreciation, 10% depreciation, who, 70%. And, and who makes that call? And that is a, a bone of contention because appraisers often don't want to make that call. And so they'll want to get some, you know, get some other witness to try to make the call. And the other witnesses don't want to make the call because they don't deal in it. So then they'll go try to find an engineer or something to say what the physical depreciation is. But there are multiple, and it gets deeper than the purpose of this podcast, physical depreciation is not the only type of depreciation considered in calculation of depreciation for an appraisal because you also have things like market obsolescence. Um, so there are multiple types of depreciation that you have to take into account, not just physical. Uh, so suffice it to say, it's really hard to get to a reasonable cost approach on most properties. And most written appraisal reports, you'll see them say, we didn't prepare a cost approach because, you know, it essentially market participants wouldn't determine how much they're going to pay for this building by using the cost approach. So where is the sacrifice chicken and the Ouija board in the cost approach? In the depreciation I mean, it's, analysis? It's pretty much the whole thing because you, the first you're, you know, you have to figure out the act, the cost. Right. And if you've ever done construction projects or tried to have a contractor build something for you, you know, cost estimation is its own just deep world of lies and nonsense. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's not like you're going to get a valid cost estimate from a lot of people. I mean, it's, oh, we're going to make it be much higher than it needs to be so that when you give us the work, we'll just pocket all the money. Uh, so assuming you can get a valid cost estimate, you then have to figure out, you know, you're not really looking at that. You're looking at what you're trying to get to what it costs to make at the time and what it's worth now. So then your depreciation is just complete nonsense. I mean, how do you... <laughs> so, but if you have, like, this might work really well if you have, like, a warehouse space that you built three months before the offer was made. Yeah, because you know that you essentially have no meaningful depreciation and you have direct access to reasonably current cost data. Got so it. you know what they paid, so it's not you're not dealing with a cost estimate, You and you have the data, and you can pretty much say, you know, none or minimal depreciation, so you pretty much know exactly what you've got. But but here's where the manipulation comes in, okay? And this is one of the reasons I hate the cost approach, is what they'll try to say if they are uh, employed by the landowner is that the building is barely depreciated. That's It's got so much value to it. And we actually worked on a case together where the building was almost 50 years old and their appraiser walked into court and claimed the depreciation on that building was 15%. What? What? Well, what? consider that it's, you have, it's just a, it was like a block house building. Okay, it wasn't a very complicated building at all. And so if it's there and it's structurally sound, even if it's old, like how much should you depreciate it by? I mean, it's all theoretical because think about this. Does what it costs to build something equate to what the thing is worth? No. no. Okay. Then now you see the base flaw in the entire premise because you're trying to arrive at fair market value by dealing with the cost what of what it, it costs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. And hey. then there's an entire another world of, of 
chicken sacrifice there called that where you try to basically fudge the numbers to figure out what the fair market value is once you've done that cost data. So you end up with things like, quote, entrepreneurial incentive. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, which is essentially that you won't you wouldn't build a building if you weren't going to make a profit on it, theoretically. So then you're looking at building in a profit. The problem being there are people who build buildings that you're not going to be positive equity on the outset because you're going to use the building in your business or, you know, or you're planning to lease the building long term to, you know, recoup an income stream. So when you're trying to reduce that to what was this worth on the date of take, you end up with a whole bunch of unreliable analysis, in my opinion. And stuff that can just confuse a jury. Hey, yeah. I, I, I want to switch gears for just a second. I have a really pressing question for you, Dave. What? All right. Um, those of you who have been listening for a little while know that Dave has a bit of, I think we could call it an unhealthy obsession with Billy Squire. And I just wanted that's to see. a little see, harsh. Well, do you think it's uh, That's a little harsh. Uh, maybe. It's not unhealthy. It's not harsh. Thank you, Ross. Uh, do you have any updates? Is he going to be joining us on the podcast or have you had any communication with him? Well, I do. I do have, I do have some good news in that we are just this close and I'm doing my fingers in the tiniest, tiniest little thing you can imagine. Just a teeny tiny. Okay. Garth. And, um, I, he, he is this close to coming onto the show. He is. He is. He'll be here soon. I, did he respond or did you, Dave wait, did you wrote him two letters? Oh, I knew one, about one, two, two. I did. Yes. Is yes. there any chance you can tell us maybe what you said to him? This this concerns me. You want me to read the letter? Please. Do you have it with Please, you? Please read the letter. Well, I carry Make all believers my believers out of them. Okay. You have it with you. Well, yeah, I carry I'm a lawyer. I carry all my correspondence with me. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Dear Mr. Squire, you are my favorite rock star between the 8th and the 11th grades. My colleagues and I have recently launched a podcast related to the American infrastructure industry. It has nothing to do with you or your music. However, you're a recurring theme on the podcast, and we would be honored if you could join us for a very short segment. If you would be willing to join my colleagues for a very short segment on the Pendulum Land podcast, please email me at, and I put my email address in. Oh, so you heard back from him? No. He's a busy man. Give him time. He is? Yes. That was the first letter? Yes, that was the first one. Oh, boy. Oh, do you... Can, do let, you, let, read the second one. Read the second one. Okay, and this it's is the one. Better. It's got a hook. I mean, this one's the, yes. this has hooked him. Okay. Um, dear Mr. Squire, I wrote this one uh, several weeks later. Um, dear Mr. Squire, I have not gotten the COVID yet. I hope you are healthy too. Oh, good. That's an important point that to make in the COVID yes, era. Yes. On August 20th, I wrote you a letter, copy enclosed, to tell you that I was your biggest fan in the 1980s and to invite you to be a special guest on my podcast, which sometimes pe features your glory years. Do you have any glory? <laughs> do you have any glory years left in you? If so, please join us on the Pendulum Land, Land podcast. First of all, this is not your podcast, okay? I didn't say it was mine. You said, please let he the record the, show my said, podcast. He said the Pendulum Land podcast. Let me see the letter. No. Let me see the letter. No. Clearly, it says my podcast. My let, let, everyone, please pay attention. Um, it would be Make, an honor to invite you to be a special guest on. <clears throat> My podcast. So, 
first of all, don't be dishonest in your letters to Billy Squire. You're not winning any points with him by that. Second of all, you said your first uh, letter to him was August 20th, which was some time ago. Do you think he's just backlogged with all this fan mail? Yeah, That's why he hasn't gotten back to you? He's almost on the show. And you know what? You owe him an apology. And um, I think you should sing a song by Billy Squire. You're the, you're the professional singer. Let's give the listeners let me, a go. Let me tell you something. So you've talked so much about Billy Squire that I actually did give him a listen. And I listened to a song called The Stroke, which you have referenced. Yes. I don't even I don't really know what to say about this. I would like to, if I may, I'd like to read some of the lyrics from this song. When did you sing them? I will not be singing them and I will not be offering a public apology today. Maybe sometime. I need to give it a lot of thought. Now everybody, have you heard? If you're in the game, then the stroke's the word. Don't take no rhythm. Don't take no style. Got a thirst for killing. Grab your vial. Uh, that's one of the lyrics. Uh, U-H. Put your right hand out. Put it's your the, left hand in. Is this the hokey pokey? <laughs> Give me a firm handshake. Not during the COVID, Billy. Talk to me about that one big break. Spread your ear pollution. Ew. Both far and wide, keep your contributions by your side. What is this song about? It doesn't matter. It's got a great guitar riff and a great drum thing that goes. Everybody. See, okay, that's all you get. So it's kind of catchy. I don't know what it's about. The lyrics kind of freak me out. So do we see the same appraisers appear over and over again on one side or the other? Yes. Typically, yeah, I see the same guys on one side or the other. Yeah, even though when we take their deposition, they claim that they've testified for the other side. I've never seen any of these guys or women testify for the other side. They seem to either be landowner appraisers or condemning authority appraisers. Well, you know, you said something earlier about the um, condemning authorities always want the low appraisal, and I do think that is a common misconception. You always hear that. Uh, you know, they're coming in low-balling the value yeah. of my property. And that's that's really not the case. I've seen a lot of cases where the appraisal report will come in and the condemning authority will say, that seems kind of low. And I've seen where they've asked them to, to look at it again, to get another opinion. So I don't think that the condemning authorities are always trying to get the lowest appraisal possible. I think frequently they're trying to get the most fair appraisal. No, I don't think they want to get the lowest appraisal possible at all. And I think the statement was that it's in their be the lower appraisals in their best interest, or that's more favorable to their case. At least that's the perception. But that's a good point. That's a good point. Is what I've been told over and over from condemning authority clients is that our job is to hit the bullseye. It's not. We're not insurance defense lawyers. We're not out there to get the best deal. We're out there to ensure that just compensation is paid one way or the other. But back to appraisers, is it? Is it good or even acceptable for appraisers to do both sides? Can they even do it? I don't see any reason why they can't. If they were actually fairly appraising the property, there's no reason that they can't do both. And there are appraisers that actually appear pretty often on both sides. Um, but we just happen to deal with the same rogues gallery over and over again because you have the ones that are particularly specialized in doing only landowner work. From our perspective as lawyers, can it be used against us if we use the other side's appraiser? 
because eventually they're going to go back and testify for the other side. We're going to try to impeach that appraiser on the stand, and he'd be like, well, Mr. Arnold, my opinion was good enough for you in the Smith case. Why suddenly are you questioning my ability to appraise property? No, actually, I had an appraiser say, well, your your partner, Mr. So-and-so, used me in such and such a case. Wow. Really? Yeah. It was terribly damaging to our case, I thought. Well, that's the problem, though. I mean, if you're a good appraiser and you're an ethical appraiser and you're coming up with your opinion of value based on actual facts, not based on who you're preparing the report for, you should be able to play both sides because you're not playing both sides. You're giving an opinion of value based on factual information and you're not swayed by whose money you're spending or who you're getting money for. Yeah, except there's no appraiser in the world that actually does that because they're all beholden to whoever's paying their check. So the bank appraisers make it be whatever the bank wants to be. And these particular brand of individuals specialize in making it be whatever it needs to be in order to extract or money from the government or prevent the government from taking money from you. So I don't know any appraiser in the world that actually tries to hit the target. Well, you know, and that's their subject to impeachment on the stand. Um, but generally it's by both sides. And that is that nobody's going to take the stand without getting paid, right? And so we ask every single appraiser, how many appraisals have you done for this lawyer? And have you ever done any appraisals for the condemning authority? And frequently they'll say, I've done a hundred appraisals for this lawyer or his clients, and I've never done an appraiser for a condemning authority. Or if I did, it was in another state. And yes, I'm getting paid $300 an hour. And I've been paid $10,000 so far. And so the question becomes, is that is that effective impeachment? Does the jury care about that? Or or do they think, well, yeah, he can he can get get a regular paycheck from this law firm over a period of years and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the law firm for for appraising that law firm's clients. But uh, yeah, I'm not pretty sure that this is honest and that he's given a, a straight answer. The question is like, how do you get an appraiser that's not bought? Well, are there are there any? Sure, I think there are. I think there are too. But I, th I think really the question is not, can you get some that aren't bought? I think the question is, are there some out there who are bought? I think the, yes. the answer is yes, there are. But I don't think they're all, I don't think that appraisers are crooks. I think that there are some really decent, good appraisers out there that are really trying to hit the target, as you said. Yeah, I, th I think there are too. But, but the fact of the matter is that you see the same cast of characters over and over and over, whether it's for one side or the other. Yeah, but if you're that appraiser and you're getting called to the stand, they're like, well, it was good enough for you here. And like, if you're always being questioned and your integrity is being questioned because you've worked on one side or the other, maybe you do pigeonhole yourself. It's kind of the same reason why I don't represent uh, landowner attorneys in relocation. I don't, I don't participate in that side of it. And the same reason that you guys don't represent landowners, because it's kind of like you've got some credibility with what you do and you don't want to muddy the waters. And it doesn't mean that you're unethical or that I'm unethical or that they're unethical or the other side is unethical. It's just you don't want to you don't want to put into question your credibility to make it look like you're always just playing for whoever's paying you the most money. It's not the most money. I think the point is that you're hired so frequently by the same source. And I did this I did this in a deposition with one appraiser is I I ferreted out how many times he's been hired by this particular law firm. And then I figured out what he gets paid per appraisal. And then I added that up, not in the deposition, but at trial. Sure. And it was a, it was six, well into the six figures wow. that he's been paid while performing appraisals just by this law firm's clients. Wow. So it's not just making the most money, it's consistently getting paid so you can make your mortgage payment or buy yourself a beach house 
in the Outer Banks or um, Emerald Isle. Hey, Ross. Mm. Do you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he puts on a dress and plays a girl bunny? What is wrong with you? Uh, I don't either. I was just hey, asking. you know what it's time for? What? It's time for an over-under push. Yes, let's do it. All right. Today's over-under push is songs from Wayne's World. Okay? So the way you play over-under push is I'm going to ask you guys to weigh in on each of these songs, whether they are overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Okay. But I'm going to tell you all of them first so you can let that marinate for a moment. Are you ready? Ross, are you in? Carrie Lynn, you ready? He's never I seen am Wayne. Ready. He's never okay. seen Wayne's. Neither is Carrie Lynn, but everybody knows am these I songs. Am supposed okay? to make hand All right. gestures? Yes. Nobody can hear our hand gestures, but if you guys could see what was going on, you would be, I'm you, sure, delighted. You'd be afraid. All right. Song number one. This one's a gimme. Everybody knows this song is coming. Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Song number two, Ballroom Blitz, who uh, I believe is, I believe that song is by Sweet. Yeah, that's right. Performed beautifully. By Tia Carrera as Cassandra. And her name was oh, Cassandra. So her name was Cassandra. Yeah, you sang it. Okay. Song number three, Foxy Lady. Originally by, is, is it Jimi Hendrix? Jimi Hendrix, yes. yeah. Uh, lovely lip syncing by Garth Algar as played by Dana Carvey. So, Dave, that one's your song. All right. So let's get to it. Bohemian Rhapsody, overrated, underrated push. Dave, mm. go first. Incredibly overrated. I can't stand that song. Wow. Okay. Ross? He couldn't be more wrong, but he likes Billy Squire, so. Okay. Carrie Lynn? I think it's overrated. Ross, you're saying underrated. Oh, it massively underrated. Listen, it's everybody loves, I feel like everybody except for maybe two of our co-hosts, Ross, loves that song, including my children. I think it's a masterpiece. It and is. I think it's underrated. It's, yes. Everybody loves it, but it could be even more highly rated. Absolutely. From start, and you know what? As somebody who went to a school without words that studied opera, like the musicality of that, it's phenomenal. Underrated. Okay. So anyway, it was a great movie, though. It was a great song. The, the movie overrated. was great. Yes. Sing it, yes. Kristen. Come on. No, no. Rami Malek. Galileo, Galileo. What? Rami yes, Malek played the star in Bohemian. Freddie Mercury. Yes, he was right. wonderful. Song. I will sing Bohemian Rhapsody if you guys will take me to a karaoke bar and buy me about four drinks. I will do it. Yes. Right. Yes. You'll do it do for. This. You'll do it for some Oreos and wet wet wipes. No, she's not no. Billy Squire. I'm not Billy Squire. <laughs> okay, number two, Ballroom Blitz by Sweet. If you don't know this song, it's kind of weird. Let's hear what you think. Dave? Push. Ross? Overrated. All right, Carrie Lynn? I'm going to go with Push. I don't think it's rated at all. That's the thing. It's not, which is why I'm going to give it an underrated, because it's a bizarre song. I think Tia Carrera's version is better than the Sweet version, uh, so I'm going to give it an underrated. Guys, we are not... We are not aligned today on our over-under push, and that's okay. No, Let's see because, if we can all... because you've been wrong twice in a row. Well, actually, I don't know if you know the rules of over-under push, but like I do have final say. So, okay. um, Number three, Foxy Lady. Well, anything by Jimi Hendrix, underrated. And what makes this Garth Algar's version especially wonderful are the, the way he performs it with the hip thrusts and the air quotes as fox ears. Air quote fox ears with the pelvic thrusts. Yes. In a, it's in a donut shop. In a donut shop. Fantastic. Okay, Ross? Anything by Jimi Hendrix is overrated. Okay. Ooh, what? So we got an under, we got an over. And I'm going to go with the push because I think that it, it is a masterpiece, but I think everybody knows that. Yep. And Carrie Lynn, you are correct. It is a push. So thank you guys for playing. Um, you were mostly wrong. 
throughout this over under push. Carrie Lynn, you and I did agree on that one. Well done. Um, thank you for thank you for participating. All right, I think we should segue that straight into a very quick survey of movies that everyone else loved that you hate. I've talked a little bit about this with some of you guys, and you've got some crazy ideas. So does somebody want to go first, or uh, would you like me to, to do well, it? Well, I'm already in hot water because you guys don't agree with my opinions on Over Under Push. So I'll go first. And we might lose subscribers on this one, but there's a movie that I saw, and given, I think I saw it late. So I heard a lot of people talking about how great it was before I saw it. So I set the bar high and then I saw it and I was so disappointed. I hate this movie with a passion, even though I love the main actor, Forrest Gump. What? Absolutely. No, you are 100% correct. I could hug what you right now. What is the matter with you two? It is so stupid. It is the stupid. It really I hate is. it. Get out. It is. Just get, get out. Everybody out. Just Forrest leave. Gump You're fired. is a terrible movie. I've, what is wrong I've never been you? able to watch the thing from start to finish. I've seen it in pieces. Just keep pressing the button, Dave. No, no. It's a terrible, and I love Tom Hanks with a passion. I adore him. I think he does no wrong except for Forrest Gump. The author of the book Forrest Gump, Winston Groom, just recently passed. I'm sorry to hear that. Blasphemist. I'm really sorry for for that loss. I do not like that movie. I hated it. Okay. Hate it. Then then take this. You know what I hate that everybody likes? Any movie in the entire history of the world based on a Marvel comic. <laughs> you know what? We are. We. You know what? Now I'm agreeing with you. You can't agree with me. I am. I did. I just did. What do you guys think? I know what Ross thinks. Y'all already know what I think. Yeah, that, that stuff is trash. Marvel comic movies. I wasn't talking about that. What are you all twelve oh, years I old? I want to know. I want to know what your movie is that you hate that everybody loves. You already know what it is. What is it? Elf. Yes. I knew it. Hey, hey, Ross, well, you know what you can do with your answer? You can take a flying until <laughs> the handle breaks off and you got to get a doctor to pull it out again. Yeah, whatever. That movie's terrible. No, it's not. It's hot garbage. No, elf? it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Listen, I like Elf. This is a really nuanced response. It's charming. You're stupid. It Carrie Lynn. Piece of trash. Bridges of Madison County. <gasps> pass out right now wait is it the movie the book the theme what what is it that the whole premise of it so it's supposed to be so romantic it is it, Meryl Streep okay they're in love right. they're in okay. love now you you turn the tables and you say it was some man who was left alone while his wife went away on a trip and had this affair with a woman and we wouldn't think it was so romantic and sweet so Ooh. I didn't like the double standard of it oh I can't disagree with that uh, she she nailed that. She knocked that out of the park. She was alone while her husband went away, and Clint Eastwood comes along, and she has this affair with him, and it's so romantic and the love of her life. But if it had been a man left alone for the weekend or a week or however long it was, well, would it be Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep was the photographer? Because it, I might be okay with it. I I, I don't know. I just I thought the double standard was just too much for me, and I didn't think it was romantic. I thought it was adultery. <laughs> you know what? Wow. You got it on a technicality. It is, in fact, adultery. Did you like The Notebook? Of I never course. saw The Notebook. Isn't that based what? on Nicholas what? Sparks? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Nothing, no Nicholas Sparks. But it was the first like big hit of Nicholas Sparks before you knew it was all formulaic and the same story over and over again. Uh, it's still garbage. Yeah. Oh, you're garbage. Okay. Let's talk you about... You like The Notebook? Everybody likes I The do. Notebook. What, are I you don't... not breathing? You ha- Apparently, 
You well, hate true love. You That's are, your problem. Apparently, you're a woman. <laughs> I am. So, no, you so are. Get, you I get, get a pass. pass. I get a you pass. You get a total pass. Woo! Okay. It's just dudes are not allowed to like the notebook. I like Ryan Gosling, and I, I like his name is Noah, and he built a thing, and his buddy Eric from Entourage. Huh? Did he build an ark? No, he built a, he, he rebuilt built the house. He built the house for Allie. And yeah. then he told and his girlfriend. And then they died together. Peace out. <laughs> Allie's <laughs> back. Allie shows up and his girlfriend's had been spending the night with him. He's like, yo, you got to go. Allie's back. You know what? Sounds I think we should lovely. talk some more about the notebook on a later episode. Yeah, there's there's a lot There's a lot to deal with there. Shady appraisal tactics. Have you seen any? Well, I'll tell you I'll tell you what I have seen recently. And, and it really caught fire for a while is we did a couple of road projects that affected a number of commercial parcels. And lo and behold, every single appraisal from one particular law firm's group of clients came back with the opinion that the property acquired was a special purpose property. And why is that significant, you ask? Because then the appraiser claimed that he or she could then employ the cost method, which we previously identified in this episode as being most subject to gross manipulation. And then they would claim the property was worth two or three times what its actual fair market value was. And I am that's one of the reasons I can't stand this appraisal method. I think it's been manipulated. I think it's been abused, at least in the eminent domain context. And if I were a judge, and I will never wear the black dress, we can say that. I'll never wear the black dress, so it won't be my decision, but I would never accept it in my court. So when we talk about like these shady tactics and things like that going on, like do you see... Do you find that when you're working with appraisers, like you see a name and go, okay, that guy's reasonable and ethical and this is going to be a good appraisal. And then you see a name and go, oh, he's going to have some weird cost method thing or special use property claim. Like, do you, uh, do you know the people that yeah. are going to do the shady tactics? Oh yeah. I know the names. I know the names and I know, and some of them are nice guys. You know, I say hi to them at a party or whatever, but I know that as soon as I see their name in that expert designation, there's some crazy stuff coming. And half the time, I can't even predict what it is. It's like, you what? They're very creative. They They're are creative. creative. You They're have creative. to give them that. We'll they are that. creative. And I know certain names, it's going to be a big, big number. I don't know how they're going to get there. I just know it's going to be a number a lot bigger than the one that my appraiser came up with. And, I, and for a couple of years, I watched them use this method by declaring that every single every single building acquired was a special purpose property, meaning it was built for a singular purpose. Uh, Thanos, could you define a special purpose property for our listeners? I mean, there's usually that's a property that doesn't really have comparable sales data available for it is really how I think of it. That's how it should be. So like a, a 10 unit strip mall, it's, it's going to be hard to call that special use, right? Well, you would think so. But the hilarious part of this was a lot of these special use properties were actually already repurposed. So right. you've got from something else. This yes. was a golden skillet. Now it's a car dealership. This was a Texas steakhouse. You know, now it's a funeral home. This was a, a Wendy's. Now it's a car dealership. It just there. It was hilarious to hear them say that the building was in some way special or unique when it was you could pretty clearly find comps for it. The funeral home is a special purpose property, despite the fact that one of the comps in our report was 
that same landowner buying a funeral home from another funeral home. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. okay, give me, like, what would be, like, give me one where it would be, like, a legit, this is a special use building. It, it could be a church. It could be a movie theater. Okay. Those are classic examples. And But, but what Ross is hitting on is you will declare something special purpose if there's not a sub-market for it. Like, you can't go find 10 comps of, or five comps of churches just like this one, who sold on the op- which sold on the open market. Sure. And frequently, they've been constructed for a single purpose. Right. Like, if you build a church, there's not much else you're going to do with that except sell it to another church. And if there's not a regular church market, it's special purpose. And they say, well, we have to use the cost approach. Okay. I disagree so, about the churches, by the way. Well, I, churches, I know. there's. I mean, there's a lot. Of, but, I, like, I, I live in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have a drive-in theater really cool in this new like developing area close to downtown and it's got a skating rink like an ice skating rink in the winter which is hilarious because sometimes it's like 70 degrees and the ice is like melting and then they have an area for food trucks and then they have a concession stand and then they have like four big screens and all this special parking i would think a drive-in movie theater in 2020 there's not a lot of comps out there for that would that be something that would be like a special use isn't a drive-in movie theater just Big empty field with a Well, screen. this one isn't. It has in the middle, there's like a big pavilion with an ice skating rink with a food thing and then a whole setup for like food trucks. Yeah, that's probably more specialized. I mean, the thing about churches that bothers me is people talk about, you know, churches as if they mean a church, but there is a, ch- like, as if they mean like a, a classic looking church. Like with the steeple and stained glass. Yeah, except stuff. churches these days don't look like this. They no. look like a Walmart with a with a steeple it's stacked like on the front Because sometimes it. they are. Or like an old gas station that's been like refinished and made to look all mid-century modern. And yeah, a repurposed 7-Eleven. But what I'm talking about is a building that was constructed with the stained glass, with the pews and the cathedral ceilings and the special rooms you wouldn't use for anything else. What, what we've seen is we actually had a case where the property acquired was a large, like, auto body service shop that was built with bricks and, I mean, excuse me, cinder blocks and had very thick walls. And they were claiming you couldn't sell this for anything other than an auto body shop. And there's not a sufficient market to you to use a comparative sales analysis. And we actually did a fair amount of research to demonstrate that these types of properties were being purchased and converted to breweries. So there was, in fact, a sufficient market to develop a comparable sales analysis. And that's in today's market, though. Yeah, right? but today's market is what we're talking about. We're talking about the market as of the date of acquisition. You know what? That's all very fascinating. And I think that the, we've just demonstrated in our conversation that it's kind of hard to say if something's special use or not or specialized use. No, what we've demonstrated, it's really hard to be a lawyer because you've got to, we're constantly <laughs> trying, we're constantly trying to defeat these tactics. Yeah. I mean, a, you True. know, a, a special purpose property is usually something, in my mind, more like, say, an oil refinery. Okay. Okay. That's like, now I'm with you. A special now purpose. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, they, they, these other things, they, I think a lot of time violate one of the appraisal principles, which is that when you are looking for comparable sales, you try to find the geographically closest comparable sale to the subject. Sure. But what they do is say, oh, well, I couldn't find any in the county, so there's none. Like so this is a specialized. I'm like, if this is as special a use as you say, you're not going to find a sale in the county. You might not find another sale in the state, but you can find some more sales. You just have to actually do some work. <laughs> so, how successful is the claim of special purpose? Well, I mean, we haven't gotten it thrown out. 
because they say, well, it's the appraiser's opinion that it's a special purpose property and he can use the cost approach. But I think that we, the way we've been able to attack it is we make it appear ridiculous to a jury. So one other question, then, then we're going to wrap this one up. And since this was our Wayne's World episode brought to you by Noah's Arcade, our new sponsor, Mike Myers movies. <laughs> is Mike Myers talented or is he funny? What do you think? All right. Carrie Lynn, I think you should weigh in on this. No, neither. What? Okay. okay. If I may, I think Wayne's World is brilliant. Wayne's World 2, uh, would we call that funny? I'm not sure. No, no. Not great. Austin Powers, the first one, same thing. First one, that was funny and like, whatever. It dragged on a little bit too long. Uh, my favorite Mike Myers movie is So I Married an Axe Murderer, which is fabulous. <laughs> And if you've never That's seen it. an actual movie? Yes, it's called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And it has a lady in it that was in a lot of 80s movies. Her name is Nancy something. I would look it up, but I don't have time. Um, now, if we go beyond Wayne's World, Austin Powers, and So I Married an Axe Murderer, I literally can't really think of anything else he did that was great except for Shrek. Yes. And I have two little girls who were in their formative years during the Shrek trilogy i believe and then there was like puss in boots i think there's several shrek movies but shrek one two and three were part of my children's childhood so i love the shrek movies just because my kids love them so much now beyond that did he do other things he had a cameo in bohemian rhapsody he did he was the like producer or something yeah. right that's right yeah and so well my opinion is uh, all the austin powers movies are brilliant and funny Wayne's World 1 is a classic, which I could watch. I've seen it 50 times. I could watch it 50 more times. And then, well, Shrek, I have really no opinion. I don't, eh. Hey, hey. But, you, but um. Let what? me tell you something about Shrek before you go on. They record, Shrek 1, they recorded the entire movie. I know, and he redid it over again because he had a new idea to give it a certain accent. A Scottish accent, which is like, that makes Shrek. You, okay. I'm sorry. Thank you for being so... Um... So Mike Myers was Shrek himself. Yes. yes I did not he's know that. Shrek. And yes. Lady Shrek was... <gasps> Cameron Diaz. Diaz. It took me a minute. It took who, me a minute. Who is retired from acting. I didn't realize that She's until recently. She's retired from acting. Okay, what were you going to say? I totally interrupted oh, you. And then, and, then what, nope. and then what happened is he did this movie called The Love Guru, and I got off the Mike Myers bandwagon. You jumped off that train. Yeah, that was from 2008, and it was literally so bad. It was like that Adam Sandler movie, The Great Zohan, where once oh, I saw that, no. I was done with Adam Sandler forever. You said, we are done here, sir. Yeah. Hey, so my, so if we go beyond Wayne's World, Shrek, so I married an axe murderer, Austin Powers, like, what else we got? He was funny on uh, Saturday Night Live, obviously. I never really thought he was that funny on Saturday Night Live. See, I didn't either, and that's why I never watched any of his movies, because I didn't think he was funny on Saturday Night Live. He did do one bit on Saturday Night Live with Macaulay Culkin, and all I remember is both of them were in a bathtub. <laughs> hey, I just looked him up on IMDb. He's in 55 movies. I think like 30 of them are some iteration of Shrek or Wayne's World or Austin Powers, but... You know, what he did that I liked, I really like. And then there's a bunch of stuff on his IMDb that I'm like, meh. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I'm about out of gas. So let's wrap this one up for today. Thank you all for joining us for the Pendulum Podcast brought to you by Pendulum Land Services, LLC, a full-service right-of-way acquisition company dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way industry. Visit them at PendulumLand.com on, or on Twitter 
at Pendulum Land. This broadcast was produced by Right-of-Way Consults, LLC. You can reach out to your resident experts on Twitter at Relo Kristen, at Right-of-Way Ross, at Right-of-Way Dave. Next time, watch Wayne's World. Hi, Wayne. Hi.